welcome to our special 2017 Nurses Week presentation, Nurses Transforming Hospice and Palliative Care, sponsored by MJHS, our Institute for Innovation in Palliative Care. So today we have a guest speaker. Her name is Dr. Diana Mason. I'm Marilyn Bookbinder, um, and I am the Director of uh, Quality and Performance Improvement in the Institute. And Diana and I are colleagues and friends for over 20 years. And I met her when I was Director of Nursing Research at Memorial Sloan Kettering. She was Director of Nursing Research at uh, Beth Israel. And together with others in New York City, we started the first Nursing Research Consortium. And so I'm very proud. Uh, look what you've done in 20 years. I'm not sure I could say that much. but. So Dr. Diana Mason is Senior Policy Service Professor and Co-Director of the New Center for Health Policy and Media Engagement at George Washington University School of Nursing. She's Professor Emerita and Co-Director of the Center for Health Media and Policy at Hunter College, City of New York. She's the immediate past president of our academy, American Academy of Nursing, and the former editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Nursing and co-producer and moderator of a weekly radio program on healthcare issues since 1985, WBAI, now called Health, Etc. She's the lead editor of an award-winning book, Policy and Politics in Nursing and Healthcare, now in its seventh edition, and the author of over 200 publications. Her scholarship focuses on health policy and what can be learned from nurse-designed models of care. She is the co-principal investigator for a study funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to explore how nurses address building a culture of health in their innovative models of care. This is with the Academy, American Academy of Nursing, and the Rand Corporation. She's also a member of the Board of Directors of Primary Care Development Corporation and the National Advisory Board for Kaiser Health News. She holds two honorary doctorates and is, is well, uh, has numerous awards and publications, as we said, for teaching, policy leadership, publications, and journalism. I think you are going to just enjoy this. Let me introduce my colleague and friend, Dr. Diana Mason. Good morning, and thank you, Marilyn. Uh, <laughs> we do go way back, and she has had a very illustrious career. And it was a great working relationship, and I'm really pleased to see you again. You look fabulous. <laughs> so, and to all of you on camera, I can't see you, uh, but I know you're with us, and I thank you for joining us and say to you, Happy Nurses Day, Happy Nurses Week. And to those of you in the room, Happy Nurses Day, Happy Nurses Week. But more so, I want to thank you for the great work that you're doing. You're doing enormously important work. I cannot emphasize that enough. I want the services that you provide when I know I have an advanced illness. I do not want to die in a hospital, and I'm going to say more about that in a little bit. So do not estimate, underestimate how important you are to people and to families and to our society. But I also want to challenge you to step up because you are leaders in healthcare, and I want you to step up even more. So I have too many slides, I'm sure, so I'm going to skip over some. There will be time at the end, about 15 minutes for Q&A, and they will moderate that. Somebody in another room is doing that. So I'm looking forward to your questions and your comments as well. 
So I want you to think for a moment about what is health within your context and where and how is health created. Now, many times when I speak to nurses, I ask them to, uh, you know, think of an image. What are the images that come to mind? And these are the images. The most expensive technology we could manage and designer hospitals that are beautiful buildings, but they may not be staffed well. And so why is this where health is created? It's not. Medical errors are now the third leading cause of death in this nation. I don't want to enter this building if I don't have to. And when I was at the American Journal of Nursing, I wrote an editorial one month about how I had been very ill. And on a Sunday night, I called my primary care practice and said, uh, here's what's going on. And they said, well, we think you should go to an emergency room. I said, look, if I can, can you see me first thing in the morning? And they said, yes. And I wrote about why I didn't want to go to the emergency room. And it was because I was afraid they would kill me. <laughs> and I got letters to the editor with nurses saying, how could you think that we would not? Well, of course you don't intentionally do this, but these are not safe systems. And so, and, and we've over-medicalized things too as well. So I, I'm really working to stay out of this building. I don't want to go into this building. I want to be at home, I want to have good primary care, um, and some other things I'll share with you. So there is this mandate for reform, and it was particularly so under President Obama. We're still seeing how it's shaking out now with a new Congress and new administration. But this is my visual, my, my schematic of what our healthcare system looks like. We have a foundation of acute care strong, well-built-out acute care system. I still don't want to go in it. It's not safe, but we have this strong acute care system. We have some recovery care, some long-term care, some home care. And you certainly are contributing to that home care. We have primary care, but a not a robust primary care system. At the very top of this pyramid, we give a little bit of attention to wellness and health promotion and public health. Is that really what we want? Well, what's wrong with it? I'm going to share two studies with you that show us what's wrong. Actually, there are a series of studies. This is the Commonwealth Fund's comparative analysis of health systems. They compared the United States with 11 peer nations who have similar, uh, that are similar in terms of their development, nations' um, development. And Consistently, the United States ranks last or next to the last on most indicators of quality, efficiency, and access to care. And if you look at the next bullet, our outcomes show that we're not performing well. We are last on healthy lives, last mortality rates. Our maternal mortality rate is going up while other nations' mortality rate is going down. We still have an unacceptable infant mortality rate. And we even rate 11th on healthy life expectancy at age 60. Now, I'm over 60, and I want to live a little longer, so that is of concern to me. Where we exceed all other nations is in healthcare spending. We are number one in healthcare spending. All right? Yeah, part of the problem. 
And then this study came out of the uh, National Academies of Sciences, the National Research Council, found similar things with 17 peer countries. And what you'll see, are these are all the poor outcomes. There's a whole host of them. And their recommendation was that if we're going to improve this picture, we have to do two things. We have to address our fragmented healthcare system. And we have to start addressing social determinants of health. The factors that influence health where people live, work, and play. So it is, are there, is there access to high quality, nutritious, affordable food? Is there adequate housing? And we know in New York State that one of the populations that's most challenging are the dual eligibles, people who are on both Medicare and Medicaid. And what's most challenging about them is that many of these people do not have adequate housing, so we can't provide continuous care. We lose track of them. So if I have diabetes and I'm poor and I don't have good housing and you're trying to help me better manage my diabetes, we're not going to be successful. You will lose track of me because I will go from place to place. So there's a lot of work on these social determinants that I would hope you would pay attention to and look in your own communities. Are your own communities healthy places? And if not, how can you contribute to building healthier communities? I think this is incredibly important. We're spending way too much money on healthcare. And we've got to cut those costs, move our resources upstream, and invest in communities that need safer places to play or to exercise, that need jobs, that need adequate housing, uh, et cetera. So I, I want to urge you to look in your own communities and figure out how can we help to build a healthier community right where we live. So I think we have to flip this pyramid. We need a strong foundation of health promotion, wellness, and public health. This, to me, is a mandate. We should build those healthy communities and restore funding, adequate funding to public health. Under the Obama administration, when the Affordable Care Act was passed, there was authorization for more in public health. Congress cut a third of that budget. So they're still struggling in terms of public health funding and systems. We need a really robust primary care and care coordination system. And I, as Marilyn mentioned, I'm on the board of the Primary Care Development Corporation. And my interest in that, I'm not a nurse practitioner, my interest in that is that I know we have to have this robust primary care uh, uh, system and that nurses have views on that and can contribute to that, not just nurse practitioners. There's a report from the Macy Foundation on the role of RNs in uh, transforming primary care in the nation. And that just came out, uh, actually initial report came out the end of last year, and in March the full report came out. So those of you who are interested in primary care, I would steer you to the Josiah Macy Foundation website. Just Google it, Google primary care, and you'll find the report. And then we need good recovery care, long-term care, and home care. Now, I want to ask you on camera to think about, and you in this group, raise your hand if you would like to end your years in a nursing home. Anybody raising their hand? No. No, no. And I doubt there's anybody on camera raising their hand. So we've got to build home-based long-term care, none of us want that other alternative. Why are we thinking that it's okay to put people in these facilities which are not conducive to well-being 
and to happiness, and I want to die happy. And so, uh, you know, uh, give me a good setting. Leave me in my home as long as I can be there. And otherwise, we have to reconfigure these long-term care systems. And then acute care in the future will be, essentially, hospitals will be one big intensive care unit. And that's where you'll go for your intensive care. So that's what I think we have to change to. The question is, how do we do it? Now, I'm, I'm not going to go into this, but for those of you who are interested in social determinants of health, Elizabeth Bradley, who's now the president at Vassar, was at Yale, wrote a great book called The Paradox of American Healthcare. And she, I am talking about it. So she found <laughs> that indeed in countries that have better outcomes and better health outcomes, that those countries spend more on social services than we do. For every dollar we spend on healthcare, we spend 90 cents on social services. In these other countries, for every dollar they spend on healthcare, they spend $2 on social services. And they don't define social services as care for the poor, period. They decide that social services are for the well-being of the whole country. So paid maternity leave is an example. Mm -hmm. These other countries all have a paid maternity leave, recognizing that that maternal infant bonding is crucial for a healthy start. So, why do we have this emphasis on acute care? So in 1946, after World War II, there was recognition, as there is, has been in other wars, that we're able to make advances in medical science. And we've heard about that in the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. <clears throat> Soldiers who would have died before are coming home with maybe no limbs or one functioning limb. They're coming home with post-traumatic brain injuries that are quite severe. And so the advances after World War II were such that they realized we could really save lives if we were able to have a more robust acute care system, build out this system across the country and make these services available, this advanced care available to people across the country. So Congress passed the Hill-Burton Act, and this provided funding for hospitals to be built, including in rural areas, as well as urban areas, suburban areas, to build hospitals or expand them. And in return, those hospitals had to provide some free care. Now, this ended in 1997. There's still a few hospitals that have to do some free care under the Hill-Burton Act. Some hospitals have to do free care under, for other reasons. But under the Hill-Burton Act, that, a few of them are still having to do that. But the legacy of Hill-Burton is we have this robust acute care system, right? And nursing followed. That's where the jobs were. We went into the hospitals. We now have nursing schools that teach almost nothing except acute care, right? You get dabbled a little bit in, in community, very little usually in public health, usually nothing in primary care, uh, but we give you a lot of hospital-based education and clinical experiences. So we really were the good soldiers. We built it and we came and we were there. Well, we now need to be leaders in saying, what is the healthcare this nation needs and how can we help to build it? Uh, okay. Oh, oh, I want to go back to end-of-life care and what the end-of-life care, where we've come from. So on the slide, the last bullet is, well, one of the factors here is this this healthcare system has become very paternalistic. 
the providers know best, the doctor knows best, the, even nurses, we, talk, we know best, what's best for you. And there was this, for those of you who are older, you remember, the room at the end of the hall, right? The room at the end of the hall where we put the patient who was dying, and nobody went, they were abandoned in that room. Mm -hmm. Nobody went into the room, right? Yeah. So, so we've had this, this idea that we cannot, dying is not okay. You know, we're here to cure you, not to care for you. And so we've gotten away, I hope, from the room at the end of the hall, and obviously to work that people like Marilyn have done uh, to really change how nurses think about end-of-life care, as well as how physicians and health systems care, think about it. So I wanted to share with you the story of Amy Berman. Anybody here know who Amy Berman is? Somebody on camera, you may have heard of her, or you may have read something about her or by her. Amy Berman is a nurse who's working with the John A. Hartford Foundation. She's a senior program officer. And Amy is well, probably 50, somewhere in there. And about now, six or seven years ago, she came to me and she said, Diane, I want to talk with you. I discovered that I had, what's it called? Incurable breast disease. It's the orange depot. Uh, it's the breast cancer that's not a lot. What is it? No. It's, uh, oh, I want to say incur it's not incurable. I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the name of it. But it's a breast disease. It's a breast cancer that's not curable. It's not removable unless you take away the whole breast. And your skin turns to this orange peel mm -hmm. uh, consistency and look to it. And I remember it from nursing school. I was always taken with the orange peel look. And she said that's exactly what it looked like. And she discovered it. She was diagnosed. And they found that she already had some metastasis to her spine. And she said she went to the leading physician in the country for this breast disease. And it was in another city. And she said, so tell me what, how you would treat me. And he said, well, I would treat you the way I treat all of my patients. We would cut your breast off. We would give you high-dose radiation and high-dose chemo. And you'll get a lot of side effects and life expectancy, maybe two years. And Amy decided, I don't want you treating me like you treat every other patient. You don't even know what my goals are. And Amy said to me, and she uses this analogy, and I think it's a great one. If, I, if, if this is a, a, a graph, and this is the quality of my life, I'm way up here, right? And I had done what he had wanted to do. The quality of my life would have gone like this. And I would have just sort of petered out until I finally I gave out. And she said, that's not what I wanted. What was most important to me was to continue my work and to continue to live life to the fullest. She said, I wanted to go like this and then drop off. Six years, so she gets a little, she gets some palliation for her back. She did not have the mastectomy. She did not do radiation. She did only palliative chemo and is getting a little bit more to her back, but nothing heavy duty. She is now six years out and still working. She has been speaking across the country about informed choices for patients. She said, I needed information. I needed to know what my choices were. And without the information, she couldn't make an informed choice. But she said, providers need to know what are my goals. 
if I wanted longevity, I might have gone through it all, but she said, I think I've lived longer than it. She has lived longer than the people who go through all of that heavy-duty treatment. So her story is a really important one about making sure that patients have informed choices, that they have the information they need, and that we know what their goals are. It's their decision. It is not your decision. It's not your decision. It's their decision. Now, some people may say, like my husband, oh, you tell me what to do, you know, <laughs> and that's okay. At least he has the choice to say that. But you want to make sure that patients who say, I don't want to make the decision, that they have an informed, they still have the information and have decided it's your decision. So, important story for Amy Berman. She has shaped health policy in this country. When Obama was in office, she was called into Health and Human Services uh, Department with Don Berwick and Kathleen Sebelius, the Secretary for Health and Human Services, and talked with them about her experience and the need to figure out how to pay for continuing conversations about end-of-life preferences for people on Medicare as well as others. Uh, and so that actually, under Obama, that rule was changed. Uh, and you can get paid for those conversations under Medicare. Mm -hmm. So I think our society, though, is really shifting uh, in terms of our values. Before, you couldn't talk about death and dying. Um, you, uh, now, when I was growing up, my grandmother was laid out in the dining room of our house. Uh, some of you may be old enough to remember <laughs> that there was an alternative yeah, to the yeah. funeral parlor. Uh, so I think some previous generations had a little bit more experience with death and dying. I think the hospitals got us away from it. Um, I think we were, were not as ready to talk about it, or we were not, and put the patient at the end of the hall. Uh, we didn't want to talk about death and dying. We want to be cured. And to this day, I still have physicians sometimes saying, oh, no, no palliative care. We don't go that. We don't do that. Like, what do you mean you don't do that? How can you not do that? It's a choice for us. So there is this shift in how we're thinking about aging and how we're thinking about dying. And I want to just point out on here, Atul Gawande's yeah. Being Mortal. Have you read it? Yes. Yeah. If you have not read it, those okay. of you on another site, read it. It is, uh, it's really a profound book in many ways. It's in many ways things that you already know, but he puts it together in a very, he's a very good writer puts it together in a very interesting way, and he challenges us about how we think about aging and about dying. One of the things that he said that I was like, yes, this is where I want to go, was when he talked about people with dementia and how we're putting them in these facilities where they're miserable and they're, we're having to put, put them on heavy-dose psychotropic medications because we're, they do, they're in another world. And he said, yeah, if they want to eat ice cream for breakfast, why not? If they don't want to bathe today and they're not smelling, why? Have them wash a hand, wash an arm, get the other arm tomorrow. Wash them in the middle of the night if they want washed. Don't, why, this, why are we trying to do things to them that are so dis disturbing to them and make them unhappy? So I want to go to the facility that's about happiness and giving me ice cream whenever I want it. <laughs> Also, I'm, I'm going to assume that you have read at least the executive summary, if not the full report, 
of the uh, by the Institute of Medicine. It's now the National Academies of Medicine. Dying in America, because it talks about public education, about assessing, et cetera. So I'm assuming you're familiar with that. So my question to you is this bottom one. Will nurses play a leadership role in helping to create the tipping point for changing values and views about choices in dying? We need more conversations, and we need nurses to be leaders of some of these conversations. So I'm going to be challenging each of you to think about how do we advance the value in this nation that dying is something we all will do, and we need to talk about it and prepare for it. Uh, we want to keep in mind the triple aim. So I'm going to assume that you've been exposed to this, that we're trying to improve the health of the population. And for I would argue for people who are at the end of life, it's feeling like they had a rich last experience in this world. Uh, and the family, that the family felt like everything that could that this person wanted was done, that, that they really got what they needed at the end of life. Um, the experience of care, the quality of care is good, and that we're lowering health care costs. Now, if you just focus on one of those, like lowering health care costs, you will not improve quality or the health outcomes for people. So the, one of the values of the triple aim is that they're all connected. And if you're trying to improve care, you want to think about each part of this triple aim. But there's now a quadruple aim, and it brings you in. The quadruple aim says that if we don't pay attention to whether the healthcare providers have joy in their practice, have a high degree of employee satisfaction with their work, we're not going to reach the triple aim. And so there, you're seeing this movement towards people saying, wait a minute, institutions, healthcare organizations saying, what is the satisfaction of our employees and how can we improve it? I do want to bring to your attention, I don't think I have it on a slide, there is a new charter on, health on professionalism for healthcare organizations that was developed by an interprofessional group. We just published a couple months ago. Um, it's available on the website of the Foundation for Medical Excellence. And it essentially says to healthcare organizations, you want your employees to be professional, you've got to be professional. Because they heard from physicians that physicians felt they couldn't live up to their standards of professionalism because of the organizations they work for. And so this is challenging healthcare organizations to pay attention to certain principles of how they operate. So I would encourage you to look at that document and reflect on, you know, nobody's perfect, but reflect on how are we doing on these things. I think it might be spark some interesting conversations and help with quality improvement efforts. And everything that I'm learning about your organization says to me that this is an organization that is striving to be the best that it can be, and I applaud you for that. So um, how do we achieve the AAA while improving the quality of health services? Reducing unnecessary tests and procedures, and there are some in for people with cancer, and I want to share a couple. So this is a project of the American Board of Internal Medicine, ABIM Foundation, where they went to the specialty medical societies and said, give us a list of the procedures that you think we should not do because they are either ineffective, possibly harmful, and they cost a lot. 
And the specialty societies gave them these lists. And these lists are now online. If you go to choosingwisely.org, you'll see all, these, all of these lists. And so I go to those lists when I've got a, a provider telling me I should have this test or procedure. I go on and I see what Choosing Wisely says about it. The American Academy of Nursing is, is the ch nursing choosing wisely organization. And we're working with the Oncology Nursing Society and other nursing groups to come up with lists that nurses say you shouldn't do. And here's a few of them. Don't neglect to advise patients with cancer to get physical activity and exercise during and after treatment to manage fatigue and other symptoms. Why are we not making that a routine part of practice? Second, don't use mixed medication mouthwash, and you have to reflect on whether you all do this, commonly referred to as magic mouthwash, to prevent or manage cancer treatment-induced oral mucositis. Now, if you want more, if you go to the website, they will give an explanation and the evidence for this. And then don't neglect, oh, I just did that. I put the wrong one up here. I'm sorry. There are others on the website. If you go and search for nursing's list, you will find a whole list of things that you shouldn't do. One of the ones I really like that I think we all can reflect on is don't wake the patient in the middle of the night unless it's absolutely necessary. Right? And for the mothers, no continuous fetal monitoring unless there's a specific indication. Getting a little problem with pickup on that. The OB nurses tell us that, well, they use the continuous monitoring because they don't staff the OB units well enough for the nurses to do intermittent. That's a little sad state of affairs. Okay. Um, we want to improve symptom management. Matt, I think you are the experts in symptom management. That will go a long way. There is the charter. That's the charter on professionalism that I was speaking about and the website, tfme.org. And supporting family caregivers. Now, I know that you all are probably better than any other nursing group on this, but I want to underscore and make sure you know that we have done so poorly on this in hospitals that about 38 states now have passed what's called the CARE Act. And it requires hospitals to ask the patient, do you have a family caregiver, and get the contact information. It requires that they contact the family caregiver before discharge or transfer to another facility. And third, it requires that the hospital teach the family caregiver how to give the aftercare before discharge. Now, why do we have to legislate that? I think it's because we've been so driven by what the acute care system has said is important that we don't address what patients and families really need and want. We have abandoned family caregivers in many, many ways. You all need to be leaders in telling the rest of nursing and showing the rest of nursing how do we truly be family-centric and address the needs that families have. You're the experts in that. So hospitals in this state all have to do this. And eventually it may be that other organizations will too, you know, home care agencies, et cetera. But it's really the hospitals that are having the problem. By the way, when you think, well, they're going home, they'll get a home care nurse, uh -uh. I, it's a small percentage of patients that get the home care referral. 
And even once you have the referral, and I can attest to this with my husband, it might take days for them to get to you. So um, the patients and family, family members often feel abandoned. So be a leader on this. You've got the expertise. And then supporting informed patient choices at the end of life. That must be a, a, something that you advocate. It, it should not be, well, should I? It must be, yes, I must. And if you feel like the physician needs to have a conversation with this patient, you get the physician in to have that conversation. The patients need that kind of, of advocacy. So what about hospice and palliative care? I'd like you to think about what you would do to improve. Where could you lead? What's the vision? You know, I'm, re I, I'm really, if we, if we were in a different forum and I wasn't having to be on the camera, um, I'd actually engage you in brainstorming about what do you think? What's your vision for hospice and palliative care? Where do you think the next place is to go? How do you improve it? What do patients need and want? And how can you provide it? So I, I hope you are thinking deeply about this question. You're the leaders in this area. So here are some ideas for you to trigger your thoughts. What do patients and families need and want? Ask them. Ask them. You probably already do. I bet you do. What would provide staff satisfaction? What would make staff, particularly the frontline staff, but also managing staff, what would improve life and, and your satisfaction with work? Um, and so you're feeling like, yes, I love going here every day, right? What would improve the efficiency of care and what's a waste of time? And I know you're burdened by regulations, et cetera. I will tell you this is the time to put those regulations on the table, and I believe that's probably part of what your organization is address addressing. So look at the regulations. If you don't like them, speak to your congressional representative, speak to people. Um, and say, this needs to be changed. This is the time to go after it. What would improve the outcomes of care? And how are you going to measure it? How do you know if it's improved? And then what would reduce the cost for this organization? Because you want to be able to reduce unnecessary spending so you can afford to buy more staff, right? Mm -hmm. You want to be able to reduce spending in the whole healthcare system so you can show you don't want to just pay for acute care. If we give patients the option, then this is a less expensive alternative. Patients and families want it, and the quality of the care that they get is better. If you have to make that economic case as well. So what responsibility do you have to shape public conversations around end-of-life care? I, again, you have a huge, I think, responsibility in this regard. There is a tipping point we're at. Remember, we had the death panels, and for a while, nobody wanted to talk about it. Well, I think we're beyond the death panels. Both Republicans and Democrats die, and they both have family members who die, and they both see family members who have terrible deaths. And so both Republicans and Democrats need to be engaged, and many want to have this conversation. So I would encourage you, how are you helping to promote those kinds of public conversations. Um, I've talked about some of this addressing some of the barriers. Scope of practice, I think, is still an issue. I know it is for the nurse practitioners. Um, you should have full practice authority. Uh, and um, I was disappointed. 
that that wasn't what was aimed for the last time the law was changed. Should have gone for full practical authority. Be bold. We need to be able to have nurse practitioners make referrals to home care and hospice. It is appalling mm -hmm. right. that they cannot make that. Mm -hmm. Appalling. You need to be vocal about that. Recommendations in the IOM report and then making sure that we're continuing to pay for conversations about advanced care. Now, I am not, I, I am somebody who believes that we should not have fee-for-service payments, mm -hmm. that we should have global payments so that I'm responsible for your care. And it's up to me to show good outcomes and to deliver the care that you need. And if it means I buy you an air conditioner to keep right. you out of the emergency room, I buy you the air conditioner to keep you out of the emergency right. room. So um, until we have that, we've got to make sure that we're getting, that providers are getting paid for conversations about advanced care planning. There's still too many people, including nurse. So may I be so bold as to ask this room who here has an advanced directive completed? A couple people don't. <laughs> and camera, ask yourself, if you don't have an advanced directive, why? Why don't you have an advanced directive? You have to walk the talk. And I have one. Yeah. So be leaders in that. Make sure that all of the staff Go to your colleagues and say, do you have an advanced directive? And if not, bring the forms in, get them signed, and mine's online. I worked with a New York uh, lawyers group where they help you to put them online. So, and it's on my driver's license. Good. So we have this mandate to transform the healthcare system, I believe, and we have been leaders in this, and we have lessons from history, a mandate here. We have Florence who transformed military health care, British health care, Indian health care in her lifetime. Major reformer. Mm -hmm. This is one of her quotes that I love. When I entered into service here, I determined that happened what would, I would never intrigue among the committee, meaning be political. Now I perceive that I do all my business by intrigue. I merely propose to A, B, or C the resolution I think A, B, or C most capable of caring in committee, and then leave it to them. And I always win. <laughs> so it's about not just saying we need to make this change, but how to be strategic about moving the change forward. And I think as nurses, we're not, we, we feel like this is the right thing to do. Let's just do it. People should respond to reason. Well, they don't. So we need to think, how do we strategically move an issue forward? So. Lillian Wall is one of my heroines. She started school health nurse in Lower East Side of Manhattan, Henry Street Settlement House. And I didn't introduce, down at the end of the table, my colleague from Taiwan is Che Yen, and she's a hospice nurse in Taiwan. And I visited her unit where they are doing things that you want to know about. And she's here to learn from you as well. And I would say to you, you can go and visit Lillian Wald's Henry Street Settlement House on the Lower East Side. And this is, you'll see the neighborhood where she did her work. It's changed completely. However, it's, it's really a landmark. And she was really a heroine uh, in many ways for me and for others. Um, so visiting Nurse Service of New York, she started the public health nurse, occupational health nurse. She started the first playground because children were playing in the streets and getting run over by horses and playing in manure. 
Uh, she started the theater there and was just an amazing, mm -hmm. amazing woman. And Sojourner Truth, so I want you to look carefully at this image. Sojourner Truth was a slave. She was born a slave and became free and nursed during the Civil War. And she became an advocate for freedom and human rights, knowing that we cannot be healthy if we are not free and don't have some semblance of human rights. Now, she was a great orator. She would go around and speak. People would pay to hear her speak. And this was one of the first photographs that was reproducible like a postcard. And it says here, I sell the shadow. And that's what they called these, your image on the photo at the time, the shadow. I sell the shadow to support the substance. She is selling her picture to support the work. And I would have each of us ask, what is our shadow? And what are we willing to put on the line to advance our own issues and concerns? And the, the concerns of the public. So she was, she was a, great, a great icon. So where are we today? We have a number of nurse designed innovations and I want to just share a couple with you. This is the work of the American Academy of Nursing has identified nurses who have developed innovative models of care for which there are good clinical and financial outcome data. And we call them edge runners. And if you go to the Academy's website, you'll find a whole list of people. And if you are an innovator, you should just apply. It's a designation. You have to fill out an application and meet certain criteria. And that's the information on the Academy. Excuse me, they've changed the website, and that link may not work, but the first part does, A-A-N-N-E-T.org. So this woman is not an edge runner. Uh, her name's Connie Hill Williams. She's not because she uh, left here before she could get the financial data. So I met Connie in Chicago. She was at Chicago Children's Hospital on a respiratory unit, and she had children on respirators who were long-term respirator dependent. And she said, these children, she, I said, what, what really bothers you most about, you know, up here? What do you feel most passionately about? She said, these children want to go home, and the parents want them to go home. But we don't have the supports in the community to send them home early and safely. And so she put together a coalition of people from the hospital and the community, the people who do the equipment, who, who manage the equipment in the community, the mm -hmm. Medicaid provider, because most of these people are on Medicaid, and put together this coalition, and they were able to send these kids home early with support. She reduced length of stay dramatically, and that saved money, and we know it. She just didn't quantify it. And the patients and the families were delighted to get out of there. And she involved the education system, too. And she said, what we do is we ask patients and families, and I think we must ask communities, what do you need and want? And that's what we respond to. It's not what we want, it's what they want. Honey Hill, she's great. This is Lauren Harden. She is a nurse who was up in Michigan. She's now with the Camden Coalition, Jeff, Jeff Bremer, Brenner and the Hotspotters. I think you read the New Yorker article on the hot spotters by Atugawandi some years ago. He's a physician who has this very difficult population in Camden, uh, New Jersey, that uh, high utilizers of healthcare services, emergency departments, hospitals. 
uh, she, in Michigan, was asked by her health system to look at these high utilizers. And she does a 10-year retrospective record review on these patients. And what she discovered is that she said, it's not the patients who fail. It's the system that fails the patient. She said in one case, she went back in the record, the patient was supposed to be HIV positive. The patient had HPV. And somewhere in the record, there was an error that lived with that patient over the years. And she had story after story after story. And so she's got this whole complex care model that she's developed and now is doing it with, with Jeffrey Brenner. And I want to give you one example that might be relevant to you. And she's a clinical nurse leader. She was educated in that role. So she, they had patients with dementia who were really end stage of the disease. And they had all these behavioral problems. And so the facilities they were in couldn't manage them well. They weren't managing them well. So they sent them to the psych unit. And what they found was that these patients were dying on the psych unit. Now, why? Well, she got in there and did this you know, root cause analysis and came up with a plan, early transition to palliative and hospice care. Why are these end-stage patients going into the psych unit? They don't. They need hospice and palliative care. And these facilities they were in didn't know what to do with that. She was able to decrease the length of stay when they did go to the, the psych unit from 19 days to about 15 days. And she developed an interprofessional dementia with behaviors care pathway. So here are the data. So she found that the purple is the death. The green is the dementia death, and the gold is the expected death. And from 2006 to 2012, you can see that she was able to reduce those dementia deaths to zero. Zero, because of this care pathway. And raising awareness that these patients really could do could die not in the hospital psych unit, drugged and they could die with supportive family and in a, a setting that they knew. So kudos to her. Uh, family presence during codes and invasive procedures. Yes. Okay. Uh, this is, um, I have 15 minutes for Q&A though, right? Okay. So if you don't know about family presence, you're probably on top of this anyway. But still with hospitals, when I was at AJN, they couldn't go into codes and invasive mm -hmm. procedures. These are two nurses who changed that. They worked, they got the data, they changed the policies, et cetera. And they had this one woman who was with her son when he coded and died in the emergency department. She's the one who said, no more, no more. And she told the nurse I was with him when he was born, I had to be with him when he died. Um, so. I'm going to skip over this. This, uh, this is a paper we published on what are the commonalities across these edge runner models. The, these are the four commonalities. We define health holistically. We are individual, family, and community-centric. Relationships are key, and those take time. You know that. And group and public health approaches, and that's the key to some of these edge runner models. So, how do we, what do we, there are some everyday innovations I'm not going to go through, but look at Maker Nurse. Google Maker Nurse, and you'll see the innovations that nurses have done in every setting to, you know, make things that work better, that are cheaper, that are, you know, save lives. 
And there are a couple examples here. Um, this is a nurse who was uh, dealing with patients who were with diabetes having amputations because their foot, their foot were break, feet were breaking down. She used Dr. Scholl's and showed them how to pad their shoes. And you know, look, three ninety nine versus fifty two thousand for an am amputation. This nurse who made this ID house, she now has her own business, <laughs> and she sells these to hospitals. Stabilizes the the IV. And this is what the director of, it's called the Little Device Lab, what he said. There was overwhelming evidence that many of the best medical makers were nurses. They are fearless. They are creative. However, they are also very quiet about it. We need to not be quiet. We need to show that we have ideas and can innovate. Um, so I'm encouraging you to, what is your vision for hospice and palliative care? And every one of you need to think about not the institution's vision, pay attention to that, but what is your vision? What is your passion for this vision? And then work to make it a reality. We have to move beyond that disease-based view of health. We have to. It's not serving us well. If I have a disease, I want it treated. But you know what? That's not what life is all about. Sometimes they can't be treated, as you know. Let your vision feed your passion. If you have this vision and you see it, and it's like, yes, that's what needs to happen. That will keep your passion moving. And then let your passion drive your action. You know, it will. If you feel committed to it, it will drive you and keep you moving. And you just need to persevere. And I would argue you have to do it in groups. Who can you work with? Don't do it alone. It's no fun. Work with other people. They'll hold you up when you flounder and vice mm -hmm. versa. Mm -hmm. um, what barriers do you anticipate? and how will, will you work to reduce those? And who are the resources? And there are resources in this room who can help you with how to develop a strategy for moving something forward. So call on these people. So use your voice. Uh, I think you should be out in the media um, talking more about these issues. Uh, you know, you've got the expertise and you know how to talk to the public. So. so uh, the future of nursing challenges us that nurses should be full partners with physicians and other health professionals in redesigning healthcare in the United States. You do amazing work every day. Your patients, I know, tell you that, and your family members tell you that. You need to lead, help to lead the revolution in this country to transform how we die and how we lived with advanced illness. I challenge you to pick up this issue and to be vocal. Start at home. Start with your own advanced directive. Have the conversation at home. And then have the conversations in your community. You are leaders, and people trust us, right? Mm -hmm. We're still number one in that Gallup poll. They trust us. They do, yeah. So have those conversations. OK, so I'm. thank you for what you do. Um, and I'm expecting more out of you, but um, I do thank you very much for the great work that you do. Um, most nurses and hospice and palliative care that I know uh, feel passionately about the work they do. So I thank you. You are who I want taking care of me when the time is ready. So now we have some Q&A. I have uh, some remarks. Yes. Um, thank you. It was very exciting to watch you, you know, present. 
Uh, James McDaniel and I were at NHPCO last week, and a congressman from New York wanted to meet with some of um, the hospices that were down at NHPCO. And he was absolutely shocked, and this ties back to like your second slide on um, where the United States spends most on health and gets the least bang for the buck, yeah. right? Um, New York State is 47 in its utilization of hospice. And when we told that to the congressman, he was absolutely stunned. And he shared with us that his mother died on hospice, and he is now a hospice volunteer. So as we go out and we talk about what it is that we do, we're going to find people that have experienced hospice. And then in their job, in this congressperson's job, he can understand how he can contribute to help advance the legislative. Mm -hmm. We also have another uh, thing around uh, legislation that is called the Hospice Action Network, and one of our social workers, Pam Adams, has gone, and we're looking to increase that and send a nurse this year where Hospice Action Network trains them on how to present right. issues to elected officials. Right. And in June, we have Brad Macy, who invented the Macy catheter. He's a nurse oh. who invented a catheter, and he's coming because we believe that he can bring something to the table for us around work. So it was very interesting to see your slides and say, hey, we're doing something yeah, like that, you know, yeah, yeah, so yeah. really validated. So thank you so much. And who's the congressman? Tom know? Reed from Corning, New York. Oh, good to know. Good to know. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. Diana, thank you so much. What I want to just remind everyone is to really get involved and join their HPNA chapter. Now, you're a chair of a board. Yeah, the president of HPCC right. for certification. And we have 38 certified nurses here that we're very proud of. But I think if they can also take the next step besides certification is getting involved right. in the HPNA chapter. Yeah. Their chapter meetings are the meetings where we discuss the kinds of things you're talking about. And there's a chapter here in New York? Yes. Oh, we put it together. Uh, Kathleen Broglia, Marilyn Bookbinder, yes. Great. 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 And, and how can people find out more about the chapter? We send information around. Okay. We don't get as many people attending, but we do send the information out to the organization. But even here, if you don't live in New York City, if you live on Long Island, if you live in another county, get involved in your county and join and start an, an HPNA chapter. Great. You can start one so that we can then take it to yeah. Washington. Great. Dr. Mason, we have a question from the online audience. Yes. What policy or law that is currently being considered by Congress or the White House do you feel that, if passed or not, would significantly impact the care we provide in hospice and palliative care, and how can I make an impact? That's a great question. Um, it's a big question, because um, I don't know that there's one single thing, but I will tell you that I am really concerned about the potential repeal of Obamacare. Obamacare is not, the Affordable Care Act is not perfect, but it's made headway. And one of the reasons the premiums have gone up in some places is because of things that Congress did to undermine it early on. And so there are things that can be done to restore that. What the House just passed, would remove at least 24 million people from coverage. We would lose coverage for so many people. Um, the other thing is that it really, for older people, it really would cost them more in premiums uh, than what they would have to pay now. So there, there are real concerns that I have about that, but the biggest concern I have 
is that the Affordable Care Act was designed to reduce costs, improve quality. And they knew that if they were going to reduce costs, they had to change the system we have. They had to start flipping that pyramid. And the new bill the Congress that the House of Representatives passed doesn't flip the pyramid. It just addresses the cost piece of right. this. So quality will go down, the experience of healthcare will go down, and, and access to care will go down. So I think that's something we have to weigh in on as nurses to say, here is our concern about this. But the other concern I have, and I'm not sure how this plays out with you all, is potential changes to Medicare. There has been talk about uh, privatizing Medicare, about raising the age for Medicare eligibility. Uh, there has been talk about moving all of Medicare uh, into managed care. And, and so I think it's really important that you keep your eye on that work as well, because I would suspect you're heavily Medicare. Is yes. that right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So those, but uh, so those are broader health issues. On for our own interest in being able to better serve the public, I think that Medicare referral by nurse practitioners is crucial, and yeah, I would get Tom yeah. Reed on that. Yeah. yeah, that's something he could try that's to attend. Yeah, the with friends. Yeah, <laughs> I'll put you on that, James. <laughs> so, so those are are two issues that I think. Uh, uh, so the the broader Affordable Health Care Act, the 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 Affordable Healthcare, American Healthcare Act is the new bill. Uh, the Senate is unlikely to approve it in its current form, so we'll have to wait and see what that looks like. But keep your eye on that. I think it's incredibly important. Um, to the questioner, um, raise your hand when uh, we start to talk in the summertime about the advocacy that happens at New York State. Right. There's a hospice uh, advocacy day uh, where we go up to Albany. So just identify yourself to your manager, and we'll give you more information when the time comes, and you can begin to learn about that process. Great. Excellent. Good. We do we have another question. One of the yeah. online audience wanted to know, uh, do you think that state boards of nursing should mandate the inclusion of palliative care and hospice content on exams? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Now, here's the, here's the challenge. Now, they have a new head. David Benson is the head of uh, the National Council of State Boards for Nursing. And I haven't, he came to the United Kingdom, Kingdom, and I haven't talked to him since he's been here. He's been here about uh, a year, maybe a little more than a year. And, and so the way the state boards work is they, they query nurses who are one year out of practice. And they talk to them about what their work is, et cetera. Well, where do nurses one year out of practice go? They go to the hospital, right. and hospitals are not doing what they should around palliative care and hospice care. So I think it's incumbent upon the uh, getting the word to uh, the end, uh, National Council of State Boards that that exam needs to not change setting so it doesn't work. So with, we're trying to do work with getting them to do more as primary care, and people are arguing, pushing back, saying it doesn't cover primary care. Well, it does. It's not setting specific, as some of the questions are, but most are not. So I would have the conversation with them, mm -hmm. uh, meet with David Benson and say, you know, this is so important. We'd like to see more questions regardless of setting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I think um, that's all the time we have for questions today. Good. Dr. Mason, as always, you're inspirational you. 20 years later. <laughs> Thank, you so much. thank you. And thank you to those on camera.
Thank you. Thank you. So I just have one final thing to say. Um, we want to rem uh, remind you to complete your webinar evaluation. Uh, these will, uh, the certificates will be coming back to you probably within two weeks. And those of you who are in a group today signing an attendance sheet, make sure your email is there. Send that, uh, give that to your manager who's giving it to uh, either Wanda or Staff Development or uh, the Institute, and we'll make sure you get your certificate. One last thank you, obviously, to none of this would have happened, this broadcasting, without Dr. Karen Richards, yeah. our IT department. And, um, thank you. She is quite the master, so thank you to you, Karen. And happy Nurses Week. Happy Nurses Week.